0: In my Masters of Theology thesis uh, that was written and completed in early 1994, I wrote these words. One of the great divides that comes between Christians today is the controversy on the role of women in their relationship to men in church leadership. 30 years later, I stand before you and tell you that it's still a great divide. And I would say that the divide is even greater than when I wrote those words some 30 years ago. I went on to quote a popular Christian magazine. It made the following statement. It says, as men and women, work together to build the kingdom, a question inevitably arises. Are women free to give spiritual leadership to men and to teach both men and women? That's an important question. Anyone who seeks to answer that question has to deal with the text that was just read. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 11 through 15, helps to answer that question. It's not the only text, but it is a key text. This morning I want to label the message The Role of Women in Corporate Worship. In the context of this passage, is not the role of women in government. It's not the role of women uh, in homes. It's not the role of women in the workforce. The, the context of this passage is the role of women in the corporate worship setting. It's when the church, God's people, men and women, come together and worship Him. And this passage addresses when that ca- happens, when that takes place, some principles, some guidelines. So in verse 11, we have the command for women to learn in the corporate worship service. When Paul writes in verse 11, these words, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. He's he's writing a command. He's giving a mandate. Uh, The way that I would render this verse is that a woman must receive instruction quietly and with entire submissiveness. It's not an option, not up for debate. Paul is saying to Christian women, when you come to corporate worship, you are to be a disciple. You are to be a learner. And the, the subject of the command is a woman. Uh, it's the same women that were spoken of last Sunday in verses 9 and 10. When we talked about those styling women, how they are to put on godly wardrobe, how they're to put on good works. Those women who were a part of the church at Ephesus, those Christian women. Paul is addressing, it doesn't matter if they are single, divorced, or married. Paul is addressing this command to a woman, to a Christian woman, and particularly to the women who are part of the church at Ephesus. In the essence of the command, what he's getting at is that he wants a woman to receive instruction. That is, he wants a woman to be a learner. To put it in our modern day terminology, to be a disciple. Paul is wanting and commanding that women be like Mary. In that story that we read about in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, remember there was Mary and Martha. And Martha was busy serving, but Mary Took the role of a disciple and sat at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus commended Mary to us and to Martha and to all. She had chosen the best thing, and that is to be seated at the role, foot, at the feet of Jesus Christ, to be seated under the Word of God. To receive instruction means that Christian women are commanded when the church gathers together for worship, to learn, to be instructed, to be a disciple. And if this command is going to be implemented, Paul uses two terms. He talks about quietness, and he talks about entire submissiveness. If a Christian woman is going to implement this command, it must be done in the sphere and in the realm of quietness. This does not mean absolute silence. Uh, earlier in chapter 2, uh, when we learned that all kinds of prayers are to be for all people in order that we might live a tranquil and quiet life, Paul used that word quiet. And it just meant to be calm as opposed to be chaotic. It meant that the person possessed an ordered life, both externally and internally, a heart that was receptive to receive truth in quietness, but also in entire submissiveness. Paul is saying, "Women, as you learn, you're not just to hear but you are to bow, you are to submit, you are to be completely and totally in submission to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. This submission ultimately is to God's Word. and When God's Word is proclaimed, it is a responsibility that Paul is addressing here that women bow their hearts and put their lives under the order of the Word of God. They make the commitment, the determination, that when they come to worship God, that they're coming as a disciple. They're coming to learn. They're coming to hear from God through His Word. And what they hear, they are going to implement, and they're going to submit to completely and entirely. Now, this command to us might not seem radical, but when Paul wrote it, it was a radical command. It was radical to tell a group of women, Christian women, to learn, to receive instruction. In our day, it's not radical. We have women who attend our our universities. Uh, We have women at the highest levels earning doctorates. We have women teaching. And so to tell a woman, quote, to learn, that sounds strange to us. But we have to put ourselves back in the context of when Paul was writing. In that day, it was frowned upon for a woman to even read Scripture. It was frowned upon a woman to learn Scripture. It was the responsibility of men to learn. Women were just simply to hear. And so it's a radical command that Paul is giving to these Christian women at Ephesus. He's saying to them, you have the marvelous and wonderful and magnificent privilege of bowing your hearts and ordering your lives so that you're under the instruction, the teaching of the word of God. And that is applicable to men but I'm just going to deal with this passage from the point of view that Paul does. But all of us need to understand that when we come to worship God, that one of the great privileges that we all have is to receive instruction, to learn, to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this command is given to women, Christian women, that they, are to receive instruction in a calm and orderly fashion, not angry, not chaotic, but also with a commitment that what I hear, if it's God's word, if what I hear is God's word, I'm going to entirely commit to it and submit to what is said. So this radical command of Paul basically pays the way for even a stronger statement that is said in verse 12. When we come to verse 12, we have the prohibition for women not to teach or to exercise authority. And I need you to see this in your Bible. It ain't written on my forehead. And it's not just simply written as words in my mouth. You need to look at your Bible and make sure that you see it there. Paul writes, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain silent. Paul says, I do not allow, I do not permit something to happen. He's expressing the prohibition. He's expressing what is not to take place. He just expressed what is to take place in verse 11. What is to take place is that women are to be those who receive instruction. They're to be disciples. They're to be those who are learners of the word. But Paul says, that's what I'm saying should take place. But as I come to verse 12, I want you to know what should not take place. And the question might be asked, is Paul just giving His personal preference? You know, Paul just simply saying, This is my view on this matter? I hope you understand that this is not a matter of personal preference. This is not a matter of personal choice. This is Paul who said earlier that. In verse 7 of chapter 2, that he was a preacher, that he was an apostle, and that he was a teacher. Not due to his own choice, but appointed by God. So the one who is expressing this prohibition is not giving his personal feeling. He's speaking as one who has been appointed by God to be a preacher and a teacher and an apostle. This expression of the prohibition comes from one that we learned in chapter 1, verse 1, is an apostle according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. So when Paul says, I do not want, he's not talking about his own personal feelings on the matter. He is speaking as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, this is what God wants. And I'm expressing to you what God wants for the Christian women at Ephesus when they gather together for worship. This prohibition has the authority of God behind it. This is God, in essence, speaking through Paul to Timothy to the Christian women at Ephesus. And the content of the prohibition is basically twofold. Two activities are not permitted. The first activity that Paul does not permit, that Paul does not allow, that Paul does not want, is for a woman to teach. And that should shock you. That should alarm you. This should raise all kind of flags in your head. Uh, this is not the teaching that is mentioned in Colossians 3:16, where Christians are told, let the word of Christ dwell richly in your hearts, and that you are to be teaching one another and admonishing one another. That's not what Paul is talking about here. And neither is this the teaching that is meant in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, when we learn that Paul Not Paul, but Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him the scripture, taught him the ABCs of the scripture, then taught him from the scriptures what thus saith the Lord. And God used that to bring Timothy to salvation. That's not the teaching that is referred to here. And neither is the teaching that is mentioned in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, where women. Older women are told to teach the younger women. When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach, he's not talking about any of that. What he is talking about is authoritative teaching, the kind of teaching that Paul is responsible for as an apostle, as a preacher, as a teacher, the kind of teaching that Timothy is responsible for, the kind of teaching that elders that we'll talk about the next time we look at 1 Timothy, that they're responsible for communicating to the people of God. It's authoritative preaching and teaching that takes place in the context of the local church, worship service. And Paul is saying that women are not permitted to teach. Authoritative preaching and teaching that is characteristic of Paul and Timothy and elders, etc. But there's a second activity that is forbidden. And I just want to make sure that I drive this point home that the teaching that is forbidden is authoritative in nature, not teaching that takes place that is a result of us conversating with each other. It's not teaching that takes place when a mother or a grandmother teaches a child. It's not the teaching that takes place when older women are teaching younger women. It's the teaching that Paul expects to happen in the churches that he writes to, in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, that is to be done by those who are the spiritual leaders in the church, that is elders the kind of teaching that Paul himself was responsible for and also Timothy. Now the second activity that is prohibited is to exercise authority over someone. Paul says when women and men gather together for worship, I do not permit or do not want I do not allow, I prohibit a woman to exercise authority over a man. Now, there's a lot of literature on this. I'm not going to go into all of that. I, I take it that Paul is talking about an activity that is positive in nature. Just like teaching is positive, exercising authority is positive. And you ask yourself, uh, this word that Paul uses, it's only used one time in all of the New Testament. This is the only place. But I think the meaning of it is clear. What Paul actually has, what we have in our translation. A woman is not to exercise authority over a man. That's what is forbidden. That's what is to be avoided. So it means that Christian women uh, in the context of the local church, when they gather together for worship, Christian women can be pastors. I heard a thing. <laughs> I heard a thing. <laughs> and Christian women are not to be elders. And that'll be clear when we go through the qualifications for elders. In our society, maybe a woman can fit that, but not in the biblical sense. So these are the two activities that are forbidden by Paul, the apostle, the teacher, the preacher. A, A woman is not permitted when the church gathers together for worship to be involved in the activity of authoritative teaching. And neither is she permitted to be involved in exercising control or rule over men, which is what would be, again, the responsibility of elders. So that's the negative side of the prohibition, but there's a positive side. Paul ends verse 12 by saying that she is to remain quiet. And it just reinforces what he said in verse 11 that a woman is to be a disciple. A woman is to be a learner of the word. And as she's doing that, there is to be a quietness that is characteristic of her life. Sometimes you hear kids say, Whatever you can do, I can do better. Well, you can't use that, Christian women, with regards to this passage. You cannot say, Well, I can do that better than this person or that person. There are certain things that God says Christian women are not permitted, not allowed to do in the context of public worship. And the question people want to know is why? Why? Is it because you, Paul, feel have a hang up with women? Or is it because of something that was going on at Ephesus? No, why? Paul answers that question for it. We don't have to be in the dark. We don't have to wonder why he gives the prohibition. And so when we come to verses 13 and 14, we see the prohibition or the rationale for women not to teach or exercise authority. Paul is going to answer the why question. Paul is going to give us the reason why a, a woman is not permitted to teach or exercise authority over a man when the church gathers together for public worship. And his first reason is related to the order of creation. He gives two reasons, one in verse 13 and the other one in verse 14. But the first one is related to the order of creation. Hopefully you're familiar with the fact that the initial creation account in Genesis 1 and 26 and 27, When you read Genesis 1, it talks about the initial creation of man, how God created man, male and female. But when you go to Genesis 2, you get a different perspective on the creation account. And some people talk about this as the second creation account. Paul is alluding to the second creation account in Genesis 2. We know that because he talked about the fact that Adam was first created. More literally, that Adam was formed first. And when you go back to Genesis chapter 2, and you look at verse 7, and you learn about the creation of Adam, the text says that the Lord God formed Adam. The same idea that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 2.13. God formed man of dust from the ground and the man became what? A living being. And so in our text, in verse 13, when Paul says that Adam was formed, he's using the same idea, the same perspective, that we read in Genesis chapter two, verse seven. And so why does Paul do that? Paul makes a statement. He wants us to know, first of all, Adam was formed or was first created and then Eve. Now, anybody who has any good sense, so to speak, they read Genesis one and they read Genesis two, and that's the account. If you want to know when... Uh, uh, Adam was born. If you need a time frame for when Adam was born, know what the answer is? A little before Eve. Hopefully, I think you need to laugh a little bit. Some of you look stressed out here. (laughs) But but a little before Eve. But but when you look at 1 Timothy 2.13, it's clear, Paul says Adam was formed first. And, And then Eve was formed. Anybody who reads the creation account understands that and believes that. And Paul alludes to that. But the question is, why does he allude to that? Why is he saying what we all know? Why is he referring to the order of creation? He refers to it because he wants his readers to understand that the order that was established in creation has application for the church when it gathers together for worship. And and when you look at the order of creation, it lets us know that Adam was given a position of leadership and Eve was given a position of subordination. You can balk at that if you want. But from God's point of view, Adam was given the position of leadership. And Eve was giving the position of subordination or submission to Adam. And you say, how do I know that? Well, if you read Romans 5 verse 12, it is interesting to note that the fall of man is placed upon Adam. It's through Adam that sin entered into the world. Even though if you're a good student of the word, even though Eve was the first one to sin. Eve sinned before Adam did. But Adam is held accountable. Adam is held responsible because God established him in the Garden of Eden in his relationship with Eve as the leader and Eve as the follower. God wants that to be manifested. In the worship service. That leadership is male. That preaching and teaching is male in the worship service. And that's why Paul alludes to it. Let me go on to the second reason for the prohibition. And it's related to the history of the fall. We come to verse 14. Paul states, it was not Adam who was deceived. And again, if you go back to the history of the fall, that after the man and the woman have sinned, and God calls them on the carpet, we find out that Adam was not deceived into sinning. And that's his own testimony. Adam says the reason why he sinned was because the woman gave to him from the tree and he ate. He doesn't say, oh, she deceived me. She tricked me. No, he said she gave to me. And what happened? He ate. No deception is involved. And Paul says no deception of Adam was involved. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't tricked. He wasn't hoodwinked. And Paul says in verse 14 that Adam was not deceived. But he goes on. He says, But the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. The matter is different with the woman. You look at what happened in the fall Satan tricked Eve, Satan deceived Eve, Satan hoodwinked Eve, and Eve admits that. She says in Genesis 3, 13, the last part of it, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so this is the history of the fall that Paul mentioned. He says that Adam was not deceived, and he says that Eve was deceived and fell into the Transgression. transgression. But again, you might ask yourself, how does this relate to the prohibition that women not teach or exercise authority over men? The history of the fall teaches us that a role reversal took place at the fall. Adam was given the responsibility to lead his wife. But what actually happened at the fall, is that Eve led Adam? Eve was to be subordinate to Adam, but Adam became subordinate to Eve. In fact, when you listen to his discussion, his response to God about what took place, Adam says that he listened, that he listened to the voice of his wife. That is, he put his ear under the voice of Eve. And the implication is not only did he put his ear under her voice, he obeyed. And a role reversal took place. If Adam was faithful to his calling, to his position, to his role, he, he would have never ever eaten of a tree. But he sinned. And a part of his sin is that he listened and followed his wife. And Paul now brings that up and says, I don't want to see the role reversal played out in the context of a local church. I don't want to see women leading men or teaching or exercising authority over men. Paul said, I'm alluding to the history of the fall as a reminder that leadership is male. Leadership is male. It doesn't mean that every man is a leader in the church, but it does mean that leadership is male. And again, we'll see that when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 1. The question you might ask. Are Christian women today still prohibited from teaching and exercising authority over men? And that's a good question. And you can probably find uh, two answers. But instead of me answering that for you, can I ask you a couple questions that will help you to answer? That question, whether women can teach and exercise authority over men when it comes to the corporate worship service, not talking about government, not talking about the workforce, we're talking about in the worship service. Let me ask you two questions. Is the order of creation still valid today? You don't know what I'm talking about, let me make it a little bit is it still true today that Adam was formed first and Eve was formed second? The second question, is the history of the fall still true today? That is, is it still true that Adam was not deceived and Eve was thoroughly deceived? Did something happen to change that? And and I think the answers to that question Let us know if the prohibition is still valid for today. Paul has left Eve in the transgression. When you come to the end of verse 14, he said that Eve, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. As we leave verse 14, where is this woman? This Eve. She's in the midst of transgression. She has fallen into that realm. She's in that condition. And Paul doesn't want to leave her there. Paul wants to give some hope to her being in the transgression. And he says, Give me one verse and let that one verse address the issue of Eve being in the transgression. And so when we come to our fourth and final point, I want us to see this beautiful promise for women of salvation through Christ. And in order for me to make that clear to you, I got to give you my interpretive translation of verse 15. I think if you listen to it carefully, you'll see how I'm interpreting verse 15. Paul writes, but she, who is this she? It's not women, it's Eve. It's a singular verb. But she, as representative woman, will be spiritually saved. I know the New American Standard Bible says preserved. No, it's spiritually saved. She will be spiritually saved through what? Not through bearing children but through the childbirth. Through the childbirth. That is Mary's birth of the Messiah. If they, who, who are the they? It's a plural subject now for this verb Was singly, now it's they. The women out of Ephesus, if they who believe in Christ remain in faith and love and holiness with self control. What I'm trying to express, the the issue is how can Eve be rescued? She was left in verse 14, she fell into the transgression. How does she get rescued from that? How does a woman who is born in trespasses and sin? Who is born and resides in sin in that state? How is she rescued? She's rescued by spiritual salvation, by by the salvation that only God can grant to an individual. And, And that salvation is possible. How is it possible? It's possible because of the birth of the Messiah. It's possible because of the childbirth, not a childbirth. A childbirth is not going to save anybody, but the childbirth makes it possible for women who are dead in their trespasses and sins. It makes it possible for women who are in the transgression, and that's their state when they come into this world. It makes it possible for those women to be spiritually saved and rescued and taken out of that condition. And it's through the birth of Christ. You know the story, don't you? He was born to what? To die. He was born to die, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was killed on the cross. He was buried. And on the third day, he arose from the dead. And as we learned earlier in 1 Timothy, he has been sent into the world as the Savior. He's the one. He's the mediator. Remember, there's one mediator between God and men. And who is that mediator? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so a woman... Any woman who is born into this world as a sinner, dead in trespasses and sin, she can be rescued from her condition. She doesn't have to remain in her sins. And the way she can be rescued is because the Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world and made salvation possible and people can be saved from their sins. That's not just true for women. That's true for men. If you're a man here today, And you're in the transgression. If you're in your sin and you have not been rescued, you need to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ so that you can be spiritually saved. And so Paul gives this promise to women of salvation through Christ. Women can be saved. They don't have to be left in the transgression. Transgression. But Paul goes on to talk about also the assurance. A salvation that Christian women can have—that's what the last part of the verse is about. How can a Christian woman know that she has been saved by God? How can a Christian woman know that she has been rescued out of that state of transgression? Paul says a Christian woman, the Christian women at Ephesus, can know because they continue they remain in the virtues of faith love and holiness god wants christian women to know that they are saved and how they can know that they are saved is if they remain and continue in faith, that is in trust in God, in holiness, when set apart from sin, and devoted to God, and also when it comes to love. Remember the goal of Paul's instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a pure faith. And so this verse doesn't talk about Rearing children. I know you got study Bibles that's going to tell you that. It doesn't talk about rearing children. It's talking about the promise of salvation through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it also talks about the assurance of salvation that comes when you live God. You want to be certain of your salvation? Just look at your salvation and ask yourself are you continuing? Are you remaining? And trusting God? Are you continuing and remaining in your love for God's people? Are you continuing and remaining in being set apart from sin and devoted to God? Does that characterize your life? Now, and if it doesn't, you, you can't have assurance that you have been saved by God. But if you continue, you can. I thank God for the service of women at Fairview Heights Baptist Church. And they serve in a variety of capacities, a variety of areas. There are women who teach in the nursery, in children's church, in Sunday school, in the Good News Club, who teach in Awana and teach. In community Bible study, there are women who teach. Thank God for the women who serve or could serve on different boards that we have here at Fairview. Thank God for the women who hold positions of offices at Fairview. We have women who are occupying the position of church clerk, financial secretary, business manager. Treasury, women doing that here at Fairview, and we thank God for them. We thank God for the women who are on our church staff, serving as a church secretary, and praise God for those women who serve as greeters, who serve as ushers, who serve as choir members, who serve as singers. I praise God for all of you women being involved in service in that way. And I thank God that in the history of therapy that we have been faithful to the text of 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, that says that women are to be learners, but they're not to teach or to exercise authority over men when the church comes together for worship. May God help us to take heed to his word. Let's pray together. Father, we realize that this passage is at the center of the battles between different perspectives on the role of women in the church when the gathers together for worship. We just pray that you might humble us to be good students of your word and come to this passage and know what we believe it to say. May we not be pressured by culture, by politics, by what others are doing, but may we only be pressured by what thus saith you So help us to heed what this passage is saying. And for those who question what has been proclaimed and what has been said, help them to be honest with this passage because it does give clarity what women can do and what they can't do when the church gathers together for public worship. Thank you for the many women in our therapy in their service. Here at Fairview. We thank you that this church does not have a history where women are doing what is prohibited in this passage. And Father, thank you for the men who serve here at Fear of also. May our goal as a church be entire submissiveness to your word in every area of our life. Help us to be the church that you want us to be. We realize that when we take a stand on some of these issues, there are consequences, there have been consequences. But we want to honor you. We want to please you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.